good morning, everybody. It's uh, good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you are new uh, with us, we'd love to get a chance to know you a little bit better. My name's Dan. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, uh, really glad to be able to spend some time together. We're in the middle of a series that we started uh, at the beginning of the year called Begin Again. We're going to be back in that today in the third installment of that. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 10 and 11. That's two short verses. It's going to springboard us into kind of few verses today as we kind of fly over a story of scripture uh, to kind of gain some reflection on that. But Luke chapter 3 verses 10 uh, through 11. If you've got a copy of God's Word, we would love for you to take that out. If you don't have one, it's totally okay. We have the scripture here on the screen for you. And we would love to actually, uh, before you head out here, if you don't have a copy of God's Word on your own, uh, we've got a gift for you out there. Uh, you can stop by our Welcome Center and uh, see them and just say, hey, can I have a Bible? They've got a stack of them out there. They would love to give you one as our gift to you. Uh, we just, uh, uh, if you you are new around here, you know, you would come to know that we love uh, spending time in scripture because we think that its, it's words are life to us, uh, that it is the foundation for our lives, and it helps us to become whole in what God created us to be. And so we would love to give that to you uh, in that. Uh, the concept of begin again uh, is something that uh, really you heard uh, introduced uh, over the course of our worship service already. It's the idea of being honest about ourselves. Uh, we believe that the gospel uh, is the story of God giving us the opportunity to begin again. And we all need opportunities in our lives to begin again. And we, we need to be able to know how to do that, how to start over, and how to find new life uh, in Jesus. And so we've been talking about and dissecting a little bit of what it means to, uh, to be able to do that together uh, as, we, as we begin and start over and become refreshed and renewed and transformed. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about not only do we need to be honest, but we have to be honest in some specific areas. Uh, last week, we talked about being honest about our spirituality in general, uh, that we, we made the presupposition that everything is spiritual and everyone is spiritual. And so we have to be honest about where we find our spirituality, what it's grounded in so that we can build on top of that, uh, what God wants to build on top of that. And he wants to march us into wholeness of what he wants us to be. But over the next two weeks, we're going to look at two specific areas, okay? Uh, because these are kind of finishing the story uh, for us as, as part of this series of what it means to tell ourselves the truth. And we're going to talk about telling ourselves the truth today uh, in the area of our possessions. And then next week, we're going to talk about telling ourselves the truth in our relationships. And what we're going to find as this passage goes on, the reason I mentioned these two messages together is because you have to almost see them as two installments of the same thing. Uh, we are in one passage, uh, but these two things actually complement each other on a really deep level. Uh, what we're going to find is a really good litmus test to our spirituality is going to come out in our possessions and in our relationships. And we're going to find that those two things actually are inextricably connected. That your possessions, the things that you have, the things at your disposal, are actually connected to your, your greater relationships outside of yourself. And your relationships are connected to your possessions. And the Bible kind of assumes that, uh, and God kind of assumes that. And we're going to find out today why that is. If you've ever tried to kind of wrestle with that, well, what is, why does God talk about possessions or money in the Bible? Uh, why does he talk about relationships in the Bible so much? Is because our life... 
uh, and our spirituality is really connected in those uh, two areas, okay? And so we're going to unpack that. Uh, today's going to be a big fly over that, and then we're going to dig in real deep next week and try to get some uh, really clear application on that. But let's get started this way. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, okay? And uh, we celebrate that around here. Uh, we, we close the office on Monday, so the office will be closed tomorrow. Uh, and we do that not just kind of as a uh, as a thing to do because it's a holiday and it's on the calendar, but we do it out of deep reverence uh, for the principles and uh, really the goals uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. espoused and lived and ultimately died for. As a matter of fact, just right up the road, about 70 miles up the road or so, uh, his life was taken from him in April of 1968. And uh, interestingly, there were moments in... Um, there was moments in his life where uh, he, he said a whole lot of things, but there were moments in his life where not only was he prophetic when it came to uh, the course of racial reconciliation and those type of things in our culture, but honestly about himself. And I want to read to you one quote from him, both in honor of tomorrow, and then I honestly believe that it builds a bridge to the direction of the message and the direction we're going today. But I want you to hear these words. Uh, this is just a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He said this, he said, I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I choose to give my life for the hungry. I choose to give my life for those who have been left out of the sunlight of opportunity. This is the way I'm going. If it means suffering, I'm going that way. If it means dying for them, I'm going that way. Because I heard a voice saying, do something for others. Um, it's hard not to get just a little bit emotional when you read that, at least it is for me when, up here in front of everybody. Because I think what that does is that embodies the concept that we're going to be talking about in large part today. And it embodies what he ultimately gave his life for. Uh, stuff that we still haven't fully realized uh, and, and may never fully realize in our culture uh, on this planet. But it is something that harkens back to the calling that God's put on all of us. And it really draws into focus the scene of what we've been spending the last few weeks on and where we're returning to today. Uh, the scene that we've been digesting in Luke chapter 3 is, is a story where the, the prophet John, most commonly referred to as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because he baptized people in the Jordan River and he baptized Jesus, um, he came to announce a new beginning. And in doing so, he confronted and he, draw, he drew into crisis uh, people's belief. And anytime belief is drawn into crisis, questions are asked. Uh, and, and, and new things are birthed. And so he provokes this crisis, and in doing so, he calls them to begin again by being honest and truthful and repenting of certain things. But then he moves them forward, and what we left off last week was he talked about this idea of bearing fruit of repentance, uh, of what that means. And so in drawing us into crisis, we're going to pick up the story about what that fruit of repentance meant for John and, and how that relates to even what I just read to you. And I believe what God wants to do in all of us, no matter where we are in the continuum of transformation and growth, to help us to begin again in the area of our possessions and to move forward toward wholeness and the likeness of Jesus. Uh, as John proposed that there was some work to be done, that there should be repentance and truth, it, it provoked a question and a response. And we're going to pick up in verse 10 where the response happened from the crowd. And this is what they said in response. What should we do then? The crowd asked. What should we do then? Now, this seems like a simple question on the surface, but it actually uh, really 
calls us to look a little bit deeper because uh, in Luke's gospel, in Luke's writing, Luke actually wrote uh, one of the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote uh, one of the accounts of Jesus' life, but he also wrote another book, the book of Acts. It was really just kind of a history and overview of the early church and, and how the church was birthed and those type of things. And so the same author from that, and if you kind of survey his, his writings, this question actually comes up about eight times. Uh, I'll, I'll throw the references up here. You can try to jot them down real fast, or you can go back on Facebook later and pull them up. But there's, there's a few of these verses that, that jump to the surface. Uh, one of them happened in Luke chapter 3 with tax collectors. There was another instance right after that with a group of soldiers. Uh, there was another incident with a lawyer, one with a ruler. The audience in Acts chapter 2 when the church started. And then ultimately, a, a zealous Jew in Acts 22.10. Luke uses this as a, a, as a way to draw us into something that we all know to be true, is that there is a relationship between beginning again and of what you are at the core of who you are and taking action. Um, <coughs> excuse me. In our life, though, oftentimes when it comes to religion and comes to faith and spirituality, we oftentimes get these realities reversed. And so what I think Luke is trying to do is he's trying to use this idea that when God arrives on the scene and each, all these uh, accounts except for one it's a similar uh, transition. It's either a teaching or a proclamation or a miracle. And then that uh, thing is a catalyst for this question, what should we now do? What should we do then? This calls us into action. And it really is this idea of being and doing. So when we look at Luke chapter 3, we spent the last few uh, weeks talking about being, what God wants us to become. Uh, how to be honest with ourselves and where we really are. And now he's beginning to transition. What do we do because of that? And the interrelation of these two things is really important for us to grasp because oftentimes people come into religion, like I said, and they think that church and relationship with God is all about, well, let me do something so that I can get God's favor. Let me do something to be right with God. We almost use it like an exam. Like if you do these things, God will grade you and sign off on you and you're okay. But what we want to understand from here is the progression that we've covered the last two weeks sets in motion this particular question, what should we do? That our, our doing actually comes behind our being. That actually what we are, the person we are, the person we're being shaped and formed into, it results in what we do. And the progression is really important for us because uh, you've seen this play out in your life probably in some really common ways, probably in a negative way. Maybe if you've ever been in traffic uh, and uh, someone's put you off in traffic or one of those things you got frustrated and you let kind of something slip out of your mouth or something like that. Or, or maybe you uh, were at work and there was a meeting and it got a little heated and you said some things that you weren't supposed to say. Or, or maybe it was a, an argument or a debate with your spouse. I'll say debate. You had a debate with your spouse about something and uh, you, your, your tone wasn't good and uh, those type of things. And you, you tried to do the damage control later where you came back to that relationship and that moment. Maybe somebody was in the car with you or you had to go to the office after the meeting and go one-on-one -on -one with somebody and say, hey, you know, whatever. Or you had to have that hard conversation with your spouse and say, hey, listen, let's go talk about what just happened. All those type of things. And, and frequently we, we try to do damage control like this. We try to say things like, well, hey, you know what? That's not really who I am. That's not really who I am. And in one account, that may be true on one level, but on another level, it's not true at all. Because in that very moment, 
in that very split second when the word came out or the phrase came out, that's exactly who you were. When you didn't have time to clean up the words, when you didn't have time to dress it up, when everything just kind of spilled over and spilled out from the inner depths of your soul, that's you're speaking out of the overflow of who you are. And so the relationship to that is wherever you are in a moment, then it actually comes out that our doing always is preceded by our being. Now, that's a negative example, but positive examples exist too. Uh, so when, when, when any time that you put your hands to work to serve someone, uh, any time that you are giving and generous, those type of things, those are coming out of a source. And so what, what the writer is trying to do and what John is trying to provoke is he's been trying to provoke this question that is a natural question for us. When we're confronted with the crisis of our spirituality, and in this case, we're asking the question, if this is true, if I need to make a change in who I am, what now do I do? And so he switches it from what we normally do and say, well, you do something to gain something, and he changes it from an exam to an example. He says, I'm going to give you an example of how this is fleshed out in your life. If you truly want to begin again, I'm going to give you the first thing, and I think it's really interesting that the first thing that he chooses in Luke chapter 3 is what he chooses. Now, what does he choose to answer the question? They're asking the question, what should we do? And he says this. He answers, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Now, this is interesting to me. Because what he doesn't say is as interesting as what he does say. He doesn't say, well, I want you to pray this prayer right now. Hey, I want you to come for an altar call. Uh, he, he doesn't say, hey, listen, I want you to come and do anything right here. He says, in effect, I want you to do something really tangible and practical. And that becomes the birth of what is really going on inside your soul. And the question we have to ask is, why does John answer their question, what should we do to begin again, with a question about their possessions? Why does he confront... This, this as his first tip of the spear if he's talking about truly changing. Uh, and I think if you survey the gospel alone, don't even look at the whole Bible, but if you just look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at Jesus, if you take all the clutter away, if you take all the sermons away from anybody else, if you just look at Jesus, what you're going to find is that Jesus, about one out of four of his teachings. One-fourth of his teachings are about money and possessions. Now, what would happen if one out of every four sermons here was about money or possessions? Um, we might see a decline in attendance, similar to what happened at COVID, right? Uh, Y'all might be like, okay, man, he talks about money all the time. But the reality is that Jesus talked about money all the time, and Jesus talked about possessions all the time. And so I think there's something here what God is trying to connect that is a reality for all of us and it's oftentimes awkward for us to talk about and it's hard for us to grasp but what God is always marching us toward is wholeness. He wants us to be in a place of, of, of rightness with him and wholeness with ourselves in a right relationship with those around us. And so he's moving us toward wholeness. And so Jesus talked about this all the time. Matter of fact, I think what we pick up when we pick up with Jesus is he actually gives and gains us some clarity with why John would have actually made this the answer to the question, what should we do? So a quick hit. Uh, you might remember this famous saying of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. This is Jesus himself. He's drawing into really crystal clear clarity with this idea that, hey, listen, when it comes to your possessions, this is an act of worship. What you do with your stuff, how you handle your business, what you do with your bank account, this is indicative of your relationship with God on some level. That means that uh, if there's a litmus litmus test, if you were going to use this as a litmus test to your spirituality, he would say that one of the litmus tests of your spirituality and where you really are, if you're truthful, is what is your relationship to your stuff? Because what he correlates here is oftentimes we move into a posture where we actually worship and serve stuff rather than worshiping and serving God. Now, if that's true, if that's true, then that's pretty big news for us. That means that if God's out for wholeness, if he's out for restoration, then we need to listen in because he's talking and confronting and provoking a question for us of what then should we do? What should we do? Well, I think he gives us a little bit more clarity in one other little uh, snippet that he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He actually tells us to watch out for this. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed and life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because the deception is oftentimes that life is the amount of things that we possess. It's what we can consume. And, and nobody wants to call themselves greedy. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't know that I've ever sat down with someone in a counseling session and they, they, they set an appointment with me uh, and they said, hey, listen, I want to meet with you because I, I'm really struggling in my life. And I say, hey, what, what are you struggling with? And they say, well, I'm just really greedy. Uh, I've been doing this a long time, uh, a few decades now, and I've never had anybody schedule that appointment. Why? I think it's common because nobody sees themselves necessarily as greedy. We're just getting by. But we're just kind of going through the motions. And I think there is a subversive nature to greed and our relationship to things that might perhaps be why John the Baptist actually says, hey, if you want to to make a change and begin again, you're going to have to deal with your relationships and stuff because it's subversive, it's sneaky, it's deceptive, and you might not see it. But it becomes a litmus test for us to see where we really stand. Now, if you, if you wonder what greed is or how we would define it, uh, uh, a pastor named Andy Stanley, he defines greed this way. Uh, he says that the assumption that everything exists for my consumption. It's the assumption that everything exists for my consumption. And um, it's interesting because what Jesus talks about has been leveraged in our society to sell us stuff. Uh, you might have watched that uh, documentary that's out on Netflix right now called The Social Dilemma. Uh, if you haven't, you need to check it out. It'll totally scare you to death for about a week, and then you'll go back to using your phone and forget about it. Uh, but when you watch it, they, they, they talk about the fact that uh, the major companies, whether it be Google or Amazon or whatever, uh, they're actually, uh, Facebook, they're, they're watching your data, and they're seeing where you spend time so that they can sell you more ads. And what they're trying to tap into is they're trying to tap into what Jesus was talking about And what John was trying to confront in all of us, he was trying to confront this misplaced understanding of what possessions, what position possessions have in our life. And and, and that's not new. As a matter of fact, there's tons of ways that that's happened through the centuries. One of the most notable ones that I know of happened uh, right after World War I. 
Right after World War I, uh, the United States was trying to build their economy back. All right, they're trying to build their economy back. Uh, and so that means, okay, we've got to have a strategy for how we'll build infrastructure back and get people out there buying and selling, kind of like what's happening now coming out of COVID. Well, how are we going to get out of this dip? Or how are we going to gain some traction? And then there was this uh, famous uh, guy uh, as part of Lehman Brothers Global Investment Firm. Uh, and he, he was basically saying, hey, I've got a plan. Here is the substance of the plan. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote. But I want you to follow along because this is back right after World War I uh, and see if this doesn't sound like today. This is what he said right after World War I. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and selling of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. He goes on to say this, the greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food, uh, serving his hobbies. And then he finishes it by saying, we need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. Wow, that sounds like 2021, right? Now, this is not a mystery. This is what advertising firms dip into. This is what we kind of all dip into. But what we're leveraging here is the existence of what John was trying to correct in all of us. The propensity of all of us to be consumers rather than caretakers. The propensity of all of us to see that things, possessions, money, and people, they exist for our use and our usefulness that we, are, we exist and they are to serve us rather than us to serve them. Now, in order to correct that and to be called back to the fruit uh, that's keeping with repentance that John is talking about, the answer to what then should we do? Well, if you've got two shirts, sell them. If somebody needs something, give it. That is a direct confrontation of a misplaced identity of what you as a human and I as a human were created to be and to do. And so we're going to do a quick flyover from the Old Testament to the New Testament today just to get this as a common thread of what God has created us to be and to do. And then we're going to land back and to say, okay, what is God maybe perhaps calling us to do because of it? But in order to see where this all started, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, pretty much all the story of the Bible, you can read the first three chapters and you can get a really good foundation and they become formative for how we see the whole thing. And the first thing that we're going to see today is that all of us, you and I, collectively, we were created in the image of God. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. And we're going to find out what that image means. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Keep in mind what he says there. Mankind was created in our image, and they were created to rule. Now go on to the next verse, 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, there's a whole lot of beautiful language in that. There's so many things that we need to unpack in that, but here's what we want to see for today is that when mankind was created, man and woman were created, uh, that word mankind is Adama, which is uh, the word that references all of mankind. Uh, and so it, it encompasses men and women coming together in unity and oneness to reflect together the image of God. Now, there's a lot of depth to that and what, how that plays out, but as it pertains to the conversation about possessions, what, is, what has been integrated into your image is for you to be caretakers as rulers over God's creation. That means that God images himself in men and women, and he puts us in charge of the raw materials of what he's created, and he puts them in our possession, and then he says, I want you to use those and implement the character of God in creation. I want you to become the character and the, the, the image of God within creation, and I want you to take what has been given to you, and I want you to care for it, I want you to cultivate it, and I want you to use it for good. And so what are we created to do as men and women together, as we lead in creation and unity, we are created primarily to be caretakers and caregivers of creation. That is what we're created to be. Now, if you follow the train of thought in the first uh, three chapters, uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. When Genesis 3 hits, men and women turn away from God. And when they turn away from God, everything begins to dissolve and fracture. Uh, the world itself begins to fracture. Their relationship, and all of a sudden now where they were in unity and oneness, now it's battling for who's in charge. And so you have all these structures that develop out of that. And then ultimately what happens is they begin to look at everything that's created and they begin to see how can what has been created and how can other people begin to be useful to me to serve me. A real easy way to say that is idolatry, that we've turned into idolatrous people. We, we begin to serve and worship created things rather than the creator God. And when we do that, we begin to take, idolatry takes root in our heart, and instead of caretakers, we move from care to an attitude and a posture of consumption. We begin to consume. And so what has happened to mankind through the, through the centuries is we have become really adept and skillful consumers. Uh, entire continents and countries and economic systems and businesses and lifestyles have been built off this idea of consumption. And nobody had to teach us this. This is who we are. This is what we were born into. We were born into becoming consumers because it is a result of a fallen and broken image of God. And so if you follow the story out, though, God wasn't finished. God always had a plan to help, the, help people begin again, to help his creation begin again. And so his first installment of that, marching forward in his plan, was the, not just men and women being created in his image, but now he was going to create a people. Matter of fact, if you get to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, he meets with a man named Abraham. Abraham, uh, he says, hey, listen, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to become a blessing. And the rest of the story of the people of God is they've grown out of this covenant promise to Abraham. God creates a people. God creates a nation. And their role, if you follow their story out, was to be what um, Adam and Eve were supposed to be in the beginning. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. 
They were supposed to be a blessing to the world. They were supposed to carry the character and the quality of God within his creation and embody the image of God to the world. Well, it was a tumultuous ride, to say the least. It was an up-and-down roller coaster ride. And most of the time, what we saw with the story of Israel, the people of God, is they continued to pull away and have some substance of religion, but they begin to miss the point of their image. And so you get these prophets that would drop into the story at frequent times in Israel's history, and they would constantly, God would be calling them back to their image of what they were supposed to be. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 1, what you see is that God was calling his people back once again to what had been broken, but God wanted to bring about. Watch real quick. We're going to read kind of the indictment, and then we're going to see the instruction that God gives the people of Israel to call them back to the same question that John was pointing out in Luke chapter 3. Isaiah 1 verse 11 says, The multitude of your sacrifices, talking to the nation of Israel that are very religious people, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and fatted and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me, bringing me meaningless offerings. Now, what was it that made these offerings meaningless. I mean, they were going through the rituals. They were doing the stuff and kind of modern day vernacular. They were showing up to church on Sunday. They were dropping a few uh, dollars in the bucket as it came by or online or whatever it was. So they were going through the motions and doing this. So why was God uh, so displeased? Why was he so angry? Why are we seeing exclamation points after all their offerings and stuff like that? Well, Track along for just a second, and let's see what, he, what the indictment was. He says, your incense is detestable to me, new moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. I can bear your worthlessness, worthless assemblies, excuse me, your new moon feast and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. Wow, God's pretty mad. I hate what you're doing. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Man, he is just kind of pounding down on them. Like, why is God so angry? Well, watch how it resolves in verse 16 and 17. We won't read the whole book of Isaiah because there's a whole lot in there, but you can get a synopsis here in verse 16 and 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. This sounds a whole lot like what John was calling the people back to do, doesn't it? Remember what John said? They, they were asking, what should we do? What should we do? Hey, listen, you should take what you have, your possessions, and you shouldn't assume that what you have is for your own consumption. You have been gifted with the image of God to become caretakers of the world. That means that if you have been given something, then God has given it into your possession to be leveraged for the kingdom and the care of those around you. This is a fundamental shift in the way that we relate to things the way we relate to money, and by default, it's inextricably connected to the way that we relate to other people. Because we can't choose to use things and not use people. God wants to shift our focus, and he wants to change the way we see our stuff, and he wants to do so because it becomes indicative of how we see God and how we see other people. You see, our possessions are powerful for us. They can become God's, and idols in our life, or they can become tools 
to bring about the kingdom of God. So I highlighted up there the action words, right? Because we were talking about what should we do? Well, you should do some action. You should learn to do right. We have to learn to do right. It's not natural, okay, completely, for us to learn, to, uh, to, for us to do right all the time by, by other people. Um, we, we, we come to this world selfish, right? Uh, we don't always seek justice. We don't always defend the oppressed. We don't always plead, uh, take up the cause of the fatherless. We don't always plead the case of the widow. Why? Because when we turn in on ourselves, we begin to use things and people for our own advancement. And so we seek justice. Uh, most oftentimes in the Old Testament, the word justice that God calls us to is this word called mishpat, which is basically not just a, a, a disciplinary justice, okay, like you did something wrong, here's your punishment. Uh, the justice that he's talking about is bringing into harmony equity. He's trying to bring things into equity, bring things into harmony. That means that if God has given you something, he's put it in your hands to use to help the world to become what he created the world to be, to help other people. And so God is always looking at the ones on the fringes, and he's always calling the ones that have to help the ones that have not. And that's justice. And there's been a whole, I, I say this because there's been a whole lot of talk in uh, recent days, over the course of this year, it just seems like I've seen this over and over again, where there's a whole lot of talk about justice and a whole lot of argument about biblical justice, uh, which is baffling to me. Because I just want to say the word justice is a Bible word. Like anytime you see God interacting with his people, he's always calling his people, the people that are called by his name, to be instruments of justice, to be agents of justice, to make wrong things right. And, and in a culture today where uh, we so often want to separate our personal piety from our social involvement, the Bible and God will have none of that. God says you can't separate your personal relationship with God from your social interaction, and you can't draw the correlation too without dealing with your possessions. You have to deal with what is in your hands because you can't, uh, you can't look at your life apart from what you've been given. And so whatever you've been given, the connection between your personal piety, your personal relationship, and the world around you is usually connected by what you have been given. And so this goes to the heart of what you've been created to be and to do. So it's not a mystery to me why in the world John would call us to say fruit keeping with repentance has something to do with what you've been given, with what's in your hands. What you and what I, what our church, what, what believers have been given, because why we are supposed to be the outpost of the kingdom of God, the place where heaven and earth collide, where the culture around us that's hurting and antagonistic and difficult so many times, and, and, and there's all kinds of problems, God has given us the position of agents of change to bring about the kingdom of God. And how does he do that? He says, this is what I've given you. You can't serve it and me at the same time, but you can use it to bring about the kingdom of God. And so if you finish out the story, you've got we were created in his image and you've got we were called to be his people. But through Jesus, here's the beauty of what John's introducing, is that Jesus is about to introduce the opportunity of real change, eternal change, real opportunity to begin again. What you can't do in your own power and what I can't do in my own power, God does as we're conformed into the image of his son. Uh, there's a lot of cases for this in the New Testament, but when Jesus arrives on the scene, what John is introducing, 
the apostles in the early church, they, they, they played off this. This is uh, the way they shaped the patterns of their life. And, and there's so many teachings on it, but one of my favorites is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. And this is what the apostle Paul says to one of the early churches in Ephesus. He says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Speaking the truth in Jesus, what do we see in Jesus? Because Jesus is truth. Truth is not an abstract principle. Truth is a person. Truth is God. And who was created in the image of God? We were. So when we look at Jesus, we're looking into what we are supposed to be and become. This is what he says. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, that fallen nature that uses stuff in people, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. He goes on to finish this. He says to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness and holiness. That has connotations of both uh, moral change, all right, and it has connotations of ethical change. That uh, when we talk about uh, transformation around here or following Jesus, the name journey, as a matter of fact, is just about, is really just the concept of for following Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we learn to live our life in the way that Jesus would live his life because he becomes the model for a new way of thinking. And when we have a new way of thinking, we're taking the consumption habits and we're beginning to reform them and change them over time to become new and different people and people that are whole. And this is a lifelong process, one in which I certainly have not arrived, one our church has definitely not arrived in. And I think if we were all honest here, none of us have arrived in this. But what God is consistently calling us back to is fruit that is keeping with repentance and it will always involve our stuff. It will always involve our possessions. We have to think new kinds of thoughts when it comes to our things. Matter of fact, one of my favorite uh, writers, a book that the staff is reading this month uh, called Invitation to a Journey by M. Robert Mulholland, he says this, that spiritual formation is a process of being conformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. For the sake of others. Oftentimes, our, our pursuit of God is about what we can gain from God, isn't it? I mean, we want God to do stuff in us. And, and on one level, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we, we need God ourselves. But the, the holistic view of what God wants to change you and I and transform us into the image of Christ is he wants to call us back to the image in the beginning. What he created us for was to implant us as the image of God in creation. And I'll say this, that when, when believers and the church have been at their best, this has been the driving force. I mean, there's a hospital right over here across the road. There's one downtown. Uh, there's ministries around this town to the homeless and to single moms. Uh, there's people that are feeding people. You guys, many of you have your hand in some of that stuff. Anytime the church is at its best, those are the kind of things that pop up. But oftentimes when the church is at its worst, those type of things are not the focus. We become distracted with issues that we want to argue about. Oftentimes it's internally. We're casting rocks at society around us rather than loving and serving those around us, not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And instead of what we do is we begin to push back the culture rather than usher in God's kingdom. Uh, there's a guy I follow. He's a pastor in New York. I follow him on Twitter. Uh, this past week, he was uh, 
he, he just put this out. He said, you know, it used to be that uh, in times past, the biggest obstacle for evangelism for us of getting the gospel moving forward and people re- being receptive to the gospel were, were the big uh, the- uh, theological questions or philosophical questions like, why is there suffering in the world? How can a good God allow that? Uh, can I trust the Bible? Is the Bible trustworthy? Not things like that. He said, no longer are those the obstacles that we're facing. The obstacles that he said we're facing today are questions of the ethics within the church, uh, feeling like uh, the church has just become married to either nationalism or racial things or sexist things. Now, when I, he says, when we talk to people, when I'm trying to proclaim the gospel, the biggest hurdles I face are the things that should never be the identifiers of the people of God. You see, it's not philosophical questions. It's practice. It's it, it's, it's actually carrying out the justice of God. It's what do we do with our things. And for us to be formed into the person of Christ means that we understand that our personal transformation and confirmation is not for us. That God is transforming us to become agents of change, just like he did Adam and Eve, just like he did the people of God, and now what he has done with you and I as the church of God. And so that's why when we get back to Luke chapter 3, when we go back to Luke chapter 3, you can see that the answer, really simple, if we go back to Luke 3, 10, and 11, skip that one real quick, go to the next one there. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. I love the simplicity of that, but here's the thing that oftentimes we miss. The answer that John gave was something that they couldn't do at the river that day. What could they do at the river that day? They could do often what we oftentimes equate to change. This is what we usually uh, think is correlative to change. Sentiment, remorse, regret, guilt. But that's not what he does. He calls them to do something that they couldn't do in the moment that, that they could only do when they left the river. Because this is the fruit that's keeping with repentance. It's not a feeling of guilt or shame. It's not even a feeling of just conviction in a moment. It's not calling you to pray a prayer right now. It's not passing a bucket or asking you to give to some campaign. It's how will we begin to shape our lives in such a way that we see the world, we see our possessions, and we see others from a completely different perspective. And I think what John was getting at is this is what it means to be the people of God. This is what it looks like when we truly want to begin again, is to enter into the process of God reshaping who we are, both as individuals and as a corporate congregation when we come together. And so what we're going to do today as we finish up, I think the application is something that we can't do in the moment. So we're not going to sing a big song. Uh, We're not going to ask you to come to the front or do anything. We're just going to give you just a few seconds to hear from the Lord and process personally what God might be calling you to do so that you can become whole in the area of your possessions and that we collectively could come together and begin to model what it looks like to be the kingdom of God and to bring about the agents of change and justice and to honor those that have gone before us in this season. So I want to give you just a few seconds to do that and then I'll finish up with my praying.
Heavenly Father, as we uh, just process your word, uh, Lord, we know you don't just give us that just so that we could hear it, but that we could actually be changed by it. We thank you that your words are life to us. Thank you that you meet us all where we are and you understand, God, that without you entering in, uh, we couldn't become different types of people. We can't just will this. This is not just a guilt trip to make us try to spin differently or not go shopping. This is just a way that we could see our lives as instruments of your use to bring about your character and your image to bear on society around us for the good of us and the good of those around us. Uh, Lord, we realize together today that there are real issues and real problems around us. Um, so many times we would like to just kind of retreat and pull back and just be alone with you and just think that you exist for us um, just in the quietness of our own moments and our own thoughts and you exist for our benefit but we know that to not be the case you have called us by your name as men and women to become image bearers on this world and Lord we need you to come in and to reshape us in order to in order to really do that, to, to become what you've called us to become. We don't even know how to do that. We need to learn how to do that. And so I pray, Lord, for all of us um, that as you reveal these things, as you speak truth to us, Lord, that you, we would see it as an invitation into life, into wholeness, and that we would be a people of wholeness both internally and externally. And so, Lord, you've heard all these prayers. You've heard all these thoughts. And I know you're not finished talking to us. I thank you that you're powerful enough to hear all this and to speak to all of us as individuals through your spirit. We thank you for your spirit that rests in us as believers. We thank you for the spirit that rests in this place. And so, God, by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would come and you would lead us to truth. You would help us to see it. You would give us the power and the courage to embrace it. And you give us the clarity to be able to make maybe even some difficult decisions with what we have so that we can reposition ourselves in our world around us and we can see the wrong things be made right, your justice roll through our streets. We thank you for those like Martin Luther King Jr. and others, not perfect people, men and women, by any stretch of the imagination, but people that reminded us and called us back even through imperfection called us back to what's right and good, what you created us to be. And so, Lord, especially in the climate that's going on in our culture today, I pray that you would help us as individuals and as a church to walk in truth in the area of race relations, in the area of our money, in the area of our attitudes toward others, that you give us a deep peace that we don't have to hate, we don't have to be angry, that we could actually bring your love to bear and it is your kindness that leads us to repentance anyway. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to take that message to the world so that they could know what it's like to be in your presence and to be right with you. So Lord, shape us as a congregation. We have so much growing to do. I know that you've worked through people in this room to uh, be generous in so many ways, but there's still things you want to shape in us. 
um, there's still things you want us to do. And so help us, Lord, to be willing to listen to your spirit as you guide us. And help us, God, to be obedient to your word that molds us. So we call to you, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your love for us as sons and daughters. And we ask, God, as we leave today, as we leave the river, that we would go back and share what we have to make your name known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.